This throughout the world is designated Reformation Sunday, and it's the Sunday closest to that time in which, on the calendar, Martin Luther tacked his 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg to touch off what's known as the Reformation. And in keeping with that, and about a year ago, I could see where these verses were leading. This passage of Scripture was directly involved in his thinking, where he was going to challenge the works-based righteousness of people with the idea of the righteousness that truly comes from God and God alone. So that might I'd like you now to find your way to the book of Galatians, where in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 18, we're going to be processing together some very significant teachings that God has given us with regard to the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, look at these words with me. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, note the quotes around that, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Now, those last two verses we're probably not going to be able to get to. I didn't in first service, so most likely we won't in second or third either. But the real core of these thoughts found in verse 16, and we're going to spend uh, a considerable time thinking through that one particular verse. But to do that, we're going to start by looking to our Lord in prayer. And Father, this morning... uh, Thoughts and our prayers go out to those who are in need. I think, Father, throughout this congregation, the various needs that we confront, we're aware of the travels that are occurring on this weekend in which, with spring or rather fall break, there are comings and goings. Some families looking at various colleges throughout the states and the likes, bring them back safe bring back those that are serving in, on the Mexico missions team, the 27th strong, give them health and refresh their spirit and help them transition back into the normal routines of life. 
pray your hand upon tonight the wisdom of the healthcare professionals as they share perspective on the relational dynamics tied to end of life decision making. We need great wisdom in this area. And we need great wisdom to be able to apply what could be some of the most singularly important truths of the gospel this morning in a way that connects with 2013 living. Open, Father, these pages of the scriptures as you open our hearts. So, Father, what I'm asking now in these moments together within mind as we typically pray, that you would warm these hearts. That you'd engage these minds. That you'd shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. (coughs) And we pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at this tremendous scene that appears in front of us. If a picture paints a thousand words, this does even more so. Where with hammer in hand, Martin Luther was posting his, what were known as his 95 theses on the north door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Now, these 95 theses were meant to create a dialogue, a discussion among professors and students alike, and it did. But it was like a wildfire. It swept across Europe in rapid fashion. One of the things that he did was to challenge where in that time period were known as indulgences. Indulgences. There was a man by the name of Tetzel who would appear on the scene on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church and He was known to say that as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so he'd go from town to town, particularly in those areas where people were less than literate, and inform them that if they would pay a certain dollar and cents, so to speak, in their coinage, they would be able then to be able to gain forgiveness on behalf of their relatives and loved ones who were entrapped somehow, some way, in a purgatorial existence. What they were doing with this form of teaching was basically arguing that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was not sufficient. Add your coinage to Jesus Christ's cross and spring a captive free. Now, we are not so caught up in indulgences today, but what people will continue to do is to seek to apply their works to Christ's work so that they can have that added assurance in their estimation that I am justifiable before God. But here's the rub. The question is, how is one justifiable before God? The Bible will teach us that we need to be justified by God not making ourselves justifiable before God. It's based upon Christ's work, not my work. Now what's fascinating to me was that Martin Luther, who in essence 
challenged all of Europe and beyond to rediscover to rediscover the gospel, himself admitted that he had not even seen a Bible until he was 20 years old. We've got students in the Iwana program here who've got an early start. You see, he was, up until a certain point in time, a religious unbeliever, but he was deeply informed religiously, but not biblically. Now, our challenge this morning is to be informed biblically, regardless of whether we are religiously, so that we can, in 2013, connect truth to life. Now, we've got some critical ideas here found in these verses, and we're going to try to transfer these ideas through the ages via 1517, Luther's time, on into 2013, our time, and ask, how can we make sense of this? How does this relate to life as we live it out today? There are two incredible distinctives that I want to draw out from these verses this morning that I think are going to help us to better understand the relationship of the gospel to what does it mean to be justified by faith. The first one is this. In the gospel of grace, number one, in the gospel of grace, God's people are to be unified before God. When grace is at work, God's people start coming together regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their languages, regardless of their skin tone, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless. Because we become one people of God, you see. It's a beautiful thing. But here's the challenge now. And the challenge is this. Peter evidently believed this doctrinally. But he was communicating something else visually. The question is, do we do the same? Look at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, Peter was what you and I might call a true blue Jew. Antioch was the center by which the Apostle Paul was generating this global impact of the gospel, moving out into the various regions of this world, you see, into the Gentile lands. Peter's getting himself out of his comfort zone. Are you willing to get yourself out of the comfort zone? for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, Peter, recognizing the Gentile Christians up there in Antioch, are truly Christians, and so he comes northward, so to speak. But now what Paul informs us is that I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. The word wrong in the original language in the Greek is... Condemn, condemnation. The opposite of justification is condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I are informed in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, the great book on justification. What is interesting is that Martin Luther was meditating upon these verses that you and I are now looking at. In fact, he called the book of Galatians as a whole his his Katie. 
that was the name of his wife. They were so transformative in his own personal experience. This man who grew up in his Roman Catholic traditions. So now he examines this very carefully, and what we find here is that Peter now has to be challenged by Paul. We're not going to rob Peter to pay Paul here. What we are going to see is the relationship of Paul to Peter here. Look carefully. In verse 12, you and I are informed, before certain men came from James, who's that? Brother of Jesus. Where does he live? Jerusalem. Do they truly represent James? In Acts 15, we'll be told, no. But they claim they've come from James. And this is all that Peter knows. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. What's so significant about that? What's significant was that the eating habits of the Jews would typically separate themselves, separate them from Gentiles, until there's this certain and critically important event that occurs in Peter's own personal experience with God. You're going to want to read in Acts 10 on your own in chapter 11 as well. Because a voice from heaven shouts out to him in Acts 10 verse 13, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, was Peter's response. In other words, no, Lord. Have you ever tried to say no, Lord? It's a contradiction. You can't put the two words together in the same sentence. You can say no, You can say, Lord, but it's impossible to say no, Lord, without taking lordship over the Lord, you see. We can only say, yes, Lord, if he's Lord. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean, to which the voice from heaven responds, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So arriving on a scene, this Gentile family, Peter comes in, and he states in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right, in verse 34. So now, if that's the case, and if God has now removed this barrier between Jew and Gentile, which was his plan all along, based upon Genesis chapter 12, where the Jews were called to be a blessing to the nations, Peter, what on earth are you doing? What's troubling your spirit? Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, notice what's happening here. It's a military term to describe a retreat. He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. You ever start drawing back from a fellow believer? Why? In his case, it's because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, a pressure group, a religious pressure group. And he's afraid. 
Now, we so often think of Peter in terms of being the courageous one, but don't forget he was the one who cowed in fear at the feet of a maidservant as Jesus Christ was about to be crucified in that particular courtyard described in John 18. What I find is that Peter is more of an impulsive man than a courageous man when you begin to look carefully, and we can't assume that one definitely means the other. So now what God is doing at this point is that he's continuously to work in Peter's heart because Peter believes that believing Jew and believing Gentile are one people before God. But his actions right now seem to speak louder than his words, and he's beginning to withdraw from the Gentiles. And so here's now the problem of the Awa in Antioch. The Gentile Christians may be looking at Peter and saying, he's one of the twelve. Does this mean that I'm less justified than he is? Does this mean that my Christianity is somewhat deficient compared to Jewish Christianity? Question. In our lifestyle, do we ever send out signals that one's Christianity is deficient in comparison to ours? When in reality, both are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's just that that group over there doesn't follow my traditions. And if only they'd follow my traditions, then they wouldn't face deficiencies in their Christian experience, you see. But this is the sort of visual illustration being communicated by Peter to Gentile Christians. There's something deficient in your Christian experience. Bring it home. What's critically important for us as a congregation, all these services, is to make absolutely certain when one is born again, there's no deficiency here. You may look different. You may talk different. You may come from different backgrounds, different experiences. But if you're saved by grace through faith and finished work of Jesus Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. Traditions are not the equivalency of truths. <sighs> he was afraid. And so we're told here he began to draw back. It's a military term. And when I saw that, my mind went back and recalled an incident I had read of a General Bernard Montgomery. Some of us know the story from World War II described as an incredibly courageous general. But when he assumed command, it seemed inevitable that Rommel's forces from Germany were going to conquer all of North Africa. What's interesting is that Montgomery found an officer at headquarters working on some plans, and so he asked them what they were, and the officer responded, they are plans for retreat, quote, unquote. You know what Montgomery said? Tear up the plans. We will not retreat. We are advancing. Peter, tear up the plans. We will not retreat. We are advancing. Maybe we don't look like cookie cutter believers. 
But the smorgasbord of the people of God who are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ are really representative of the cutting-edge reason why this world can be impacted with the gospel because we can demonstrate to those who try to do it politically, try to do it militarily, try to do it ethnically, we can demonstrate what oneness is all about. There is a unifying factor in the gospel of Jesus Christ that nothing else within this world can possibly compare to. But what it means then is this. We've got to understand the principle behind verses 11 through 13. The principle is this. Unity diminishes when fear increases. Unity diminishes when fear increases. If we could put that on the screen. What that tells us then at this point then is this. Beware of pressure groups that emphasize their traditions compared to your traditions and inculcate a sense of fear that perhaps there is a deficiency in my, in my salvation that keeps me from being what I thought I'm supposed to be before God, when in reality you're committed simply to the Scriptures, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Peter, don't bow to fear. Peter and Paul go together, you know. But there's a second distinctive here I want you to see out of all this. Look very carefully at verse 14 and embrace this idea that unity diminishes when freedom increases. Decreases, rather. Let me get it right. Unity diminishes when freedom decreases. Check out verse 14. Look for what's happening regarding freedom. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, there's your word gospel again. It's beautiful. It just keeps reappearing, reappearing throughout, throughout the Galatians account. That's why we're trying to tie this to the adult Bible fellowships and the explicit gospel. I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. That's the way they've been, he's been living while in Antioch, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? In other words, you're sending mixed signals, Peter. Which is critically important that we understand that as a congregation, we can't send mixed signals regarding the gospel of Grace. Okay. In verse 14, I love the athletic imagery. In verse 14, we're told, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth. Acting in line carries the idea of a runner who is making his way down a narrow path toward the finish line. He's saying, you're out of line. You're inconsistent with what you believe by how you behave. And I thought about that when I came across this a few years back in an NCAA cross-country championship held in Riverside, California. 123 out of 128 runners missed a turn. One competitor... Mike Docavo stayed on the 10,000-meter course and began waving for fellow runners to follow him. 
Del Cavo was able to convince only four other runners to go the right way. Afterwards, sports interviewers asked what his competitors thought of his, of his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd. Del Cavo responded, they thought it was funny that I went the right way. Quote, unquote. Sometimes you've got to run alone when the religious crowd is not following the scriptural principles. What's astounding to you and me is that in verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, that was, that was Paul's mentor. You remember that split that Paul and Barnabas experienced in the book of Acts where they decided that they would have to go separate ways? Separate ways? Because they had such a sharp disagreement regarding whether they should take John Mark on journey. I believe the seedbed to that disagreement is found right here. That Paul had become overwhelmingly upset the fact that his disciple, his mentor, the one who had worked with him to be involved in Gentile outreach, was retreating into some form of Jewish customs that would hinder their ability to reach the Gentile populations. Here's the issue at stake, and don't miss it. The danger at this point was that all of Christianity was going to divide into two camps. Jewish Christians, led by Peter, and Gentile Christians, led by Paul. How are you going to bridge this gap if you don't apply the truth of the gospel in this critical hour? Which leads us to this scene that appears on the screen behind me in front of you. Here now is Luther. Again, it's Reformation Sunday. And he's standing before the emperor, Charles V. You can see Charles V, and he's, he's seated here at this point. And Luther is being asked whether he, would, he published and would recant the books. The books that you see shown on the right. It's 1521. It's the Diet of Worms. A diet means counsel. Luther's famous words. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. In the truth of the gospel, it takes tremendous courage to stand alone. Some are students here. And you're in a class where you feel like you're alone. Here's a thought. Don't view yourself as the only one. Instead, view yourself as the first one. 
There's a lot more believers to be found as you share the gospel with them. In fact, if you're a parent, you might want to help students, if you're a teacher, help students to merge together the events of history, help somebody who perhaps is in a history class to do a, a, a paper on the time period when this is occurring and then simply recount the events and lead into a Q&A session and see where it goes. You've got some great opportunities simply because God is God and he works over the course of time. Even after the scriptures were closed, the Holy Spirit continues to work. You see, God's people are to be unified before God Unity diminishes when fear increases, and unity diminishes when freedom decreases. And the greater the fear, the lesser the freedom. But when we are free to serve the Lord, live for God, and be people of grace, freedom increases and fear decreases, you see. But behind all this, is an overarching second principle that we need to now draw out for ourselves. And it's found beginning in verse in verse 15. I'm just going to take it to 16 because 16 is so rich. It's incredible. We're going to phrase it like this, number two. That God's people, The people in the gospel of grace, God's people are justified by God. In the gospel of grace, God's people are justified by God. We do not justify ourselves based upon our works before God. Rather, we are justified based upon Christ's work by God. And to make that distinction is the greatest distinction you and I will ever be able to make. But we need to develop this. We need a definition. What is justification? Let's put this definition on the screen, and we're going we're gonna to ponder it for just a few minutes. Justification is the act of God. Not men. Not woman. It's the act of God by which he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. You want to write that down? You want to develop that thought? You're going to want to share it with loved ones, family members. Because Luther himself had been meditating on this in 15 15, 16, 17, and by 15, 18, he began to put together the third of three significant pamphlets, this one directed towards the Pope. The Freedom of the Christian Man. It was entitled. And it was all about the fact that we are not justified by the church, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Meditating on these verses now. We who are Jews by birth, and Paul now, you can almost sense there's some dripping sarcasm here, can't you? Because 
Your translation most likely has, quote-unquote, Gentile sinners. Peter, Barnabas, Paul, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, you can almost see him half-smiling, looking out at the Antioch audience. We know. What do they know? What I want you to see here now are two sets of threes. Two sets of threes found in verse 16. They're going to explode in front of our very eyes. One set of threes, the phrase, by observing the law. The second set of threes, the word justified. Go slow with me. Try to find both sets of threes. Verse 16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too are put, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, here's the rub. In the time period in which Paul spoke and wrote, the Greek language lacked a word for legalism. Legalism simply is adding to the Scriptures. People who are additionists, they love addition. They love adding to Christ's work on the cross, you see. He had one overarching term to utilize, so he used the term law. Even though we have worked out in our studies over the course of our times together thus far, there's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, there's the judicial law. The moral law continues to this very day, the Ten Commandments. But the ceremonial law, such as the sacrifice of the lambs at the temple, is completed by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is finished, he cried on that cross. What about circumcision? That falls under the whole realm of the Jewish distinctive. You can't say grace plus circumcision, nor can you say grace plus infant baptism, or grace plus believer's baptism, nor can you say grace plus communion. It is grace alone which in the time of the Reformation, the Hebrew, rather the Latin word sola, sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And the challenge was they were adding to scripture and they were adding to faith, you see. And we can't do that. So three times now he utilizes the phrase observing the law. Three times he uses the word justify. What then do we make of this? Well, we've got to break down for ourselves what this idea of being justified is all about. So because Paul used two sets of threes, I thought I'd throw in a set of threes to help us out. The first is this. Justification is an act, not a process. Justification 
is an act, not a process. No Christian is more justified than another Christian. This was Peter's problem in Antioch, wasn't it? He was sending a signal that he's more justified than the Gentile Christians were because he's keeping traditions that they weren't. And he's got this pressure group nipping at his heels saying, come on, go back to your traditions, go back to your comfort zone, back to your people. And Paul's here to remind him, you are saved by grace through faith, my friend. Don't start visibly adding to that which is not found at the cross of Jesus Christ. And neither should we. Having therefore been once and for all justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, literal translation. So since we are justified by faith, it's an instant an immediate transaction between the believing sinner and God. If we were justified by works, then we would, it would be a gradual process. And you'd be wondering, and what more works do I need to do to be justified before God? When is enough enough? When God at that cross allows for the second member of the Trinity to cry out, it is finished. And Jesus Christ himself addressed this very issue. He set up a parable, didn't he? And what he did caught the attention of, of those around him, particularly religious unbelievers. He set up a contrast between a Pharisee who were highly respected religious leaders in Palestine and a tax collector who is mostly associated with the Roman Empire and in Luke chapter 18, you and I are informed that Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. You can almost hear them hold their breath. Listen to this Pharisee. This is Jesus describing him. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or... Even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Flip it around. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What's Jesus' conclusion? I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Being religious does not mean being justified. Justification is an act. Not a process. But furthermore, justification means we are declared righteous. Not made righteous. It was used to describe a judge's statement in a debtor's court in that time period. 
So let me pick on myself for a minute, which is frankly very easy to do. And what I want you to see here is that as this slowly sinner stands before the holy God, and I am reminded of all my sins in my life and that I am sinful by nature, I am also reminded of the fact by my loving Savior that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ in my younger years. But I know that in the financial records, God's got books. I don't want to peer into the books, but finally I get a glimpse because I know that when it comes to Jesus Christ, there's righteousness there. And when I look So I think into the books of Gary Highlander, I see nothing but sinfulness there. But here's the beauty of the hour. I call it the double exchange. I look into Christ's book, and it reads, regarding his righteousness, transferred to the account of Gary Highlander. That's a single exchange. But I still know that there is the whole matter of my sinfulness and my account until I look very carefully and I realize it also reads Gary's sinfulness transferred to the account of Jesus Christ. And astoundingly, I am staring at the double exchange of justification. I have been utilizing now a financial court, declared righteous. Doesn't mean I am righteous. Doesn't mean I did righteous things. But because of this declaration by God, having put my faith and trust not in my works or in myself, but in Jesus Christ, I have been declared righteous Righteousness transferred from Christ's account to mine. Sinfulness transferred from my account to Christ. He took my sins upon that cross and died in my place to set me free. Now this judge says you are free. Isn't this beautiful? This is the beauty, and we've got to communicate this. Because what I'm in essence saying here is that what Peter was representing is still a danger in today's 2013 living. That among some groups we might communicate there is is gospel deficiency. When in reality we've got to point to Jesus Christ and be able to say there is gospel sufficiency. You see. The sufficiency of grace and grace alone is the beauty of the double exchange. Which leads us then to this third significant thought. That justification is by faith in Christ. Not by our character. By our works. Because the secular unbeliever banks upon his or her character, assuming I am good by nature, even though Paul wrote in Romans, there is none good, no, not one. The religious unbeliever banks upon his or her works, assuming that they need to add something more to what Christ did. 
so that they can be justifiable before God when in reality what they need is to be justified by God. Which now takes me and you back to the beginning. And that scene that we opened with, with this incredible professor with a hammer in his hand, nailing his 95 theses to that door. If you could show that scene again, thank you. And as you stare at that scene, ponder now what Luther had to say, since this is Reformation Sunday, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, born again to have gone through open doors into paradise. And the whole of Scriptures now took on a new meaning. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. A gate to heaven. This is beautiful. God's people are to be unified before God because God's people are justified by God. And that's what would make a church powerful. That's what makes believers impactful when we grasp these two significant distinctives and pull them together. Do this. Share this gospel with people who need to know. Invite friends to come out, learn more about this gospel in Galatians, that together we can reach this region beyond for the glory of our Lord. Let's stand together. And we're praising and we're thanking you, Father, for who you are. You're the God of scriptures. You're the God of history. You are the God of the present. You are God. And you get very personal with us. And you press truth into our hearts. If there's anyone here who needs the work of Christ credited to their account and their sins attached to Christ's account. I pray that he or she will put faith and trust in Christ, his work, and Christ alone. Thank you for these opportunities, Father, to worship reflect upon you, learn from you. We want you to get all the glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name.